Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia, and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. everyone. Before I jump into this week's episode, I wanted to touch on something I mentioned in my intro last week when discussing the French-Indian War. I mentioned I would explain why it was known by so many different names, and wouldn't you know it? I forgot. Jeez. Anywho, the war has different names depending on the country in which you reside, and whose perspective you're learning from. For the U.S., it is the French and Indian War. For Great Britain, it's known as the Seven Years War, and because they lost so terribly, both on land and at sea, the French call it the War of Conquest. My bad, everybody. I will work to be better. So what am I talking about this week? I'm so glad you asked. One of the goals I had when I launched this podcast was to pick some of the less-known individuals or events throughout history. I also want to give props to my fellow ladies who have put their blood, sweat, and tears into the shaping of our history. So today... I'm going to talk about women business owners in colonial America and give you a brief history of one of the most influential female merchants of her time, Elizabeth Murray. Didn't know women ran businesses in colonial America? Want to know more about Elizabeth Murray? Grab your coffee. Elizabeth Murray, born in Scotland in 1726, was a female shopkeeper in Boston in the run-up to the American Revolution. Murray is fascinating for a number of reasons. From her own success as a merchant to her mentorship of other women, and her home becoming overrun with colonial soldiers during the Revolution. While Murray was not the only woman shop owner in the colonies, her story is unique due to the surviving records of her life that highlight some of the important experiences of women in colonial America. Murray grew up in a town called Unthank in the Scottish Hills, not far from Scotland's frontier with England. And yeah, you heard the name of the town correctly, Unthank. The town got its namesake in part due to the poor farming conditions in the region, with regular rainfall and uncooperative soil. Elizabeth spent her youth on the family's farm and was one of eight children, though only five survived into adulthood. She was orphaned by the age of 12, which would set Elizabeth on a path of migration that she would repeat throughout her life, traveling for the first time to live with her older brother in the North Carolina colony, arriving in the spring of 1739. Given the charge of managing her brother's household, Elizabeth had the opportunity to learn basic math with keeping accounts and oversaw the work of the servants and performed household chores. Elizabeth was observant and watched closely as her brother James tried, and failed, to become a successful shopkeeper in the colony. Not a densely populated area, running a shop in North Carolina required long repayment plans and a willingness to barter or trade for goods purchased. North Carolina was also swampy and humid, which made Elizabeth less than a fan of her new home. Soon after her arrival, James met his soon-to-be wife, and Elizabeth was sent to live with her sister Barbara in 1741 in a neighboring township. Before long, Elizabeth got the opportunity to travel across the Atlantic yet again when she traveled with James back to England. She would spend five years in England with James and his wife as his dependent. When Barbara's husband died, the family once again made the trek to provide support, landing in Boston in 1749. From Boston, the family... James, with his newly pregnant wife and Elizabeth, were supposed to continue on to North Carolina. 
while James went ahead to make the preparations for the ladies' arrival, Elizabeth had the opportunity to explore the busy port city. It was in Boston Elizabeth saw women shopkeepers offering imported goods from England and decided that maybe commerce would be her way to make a living. Elizabeth saw opportunities in Boston not available to her in North Carolina, where shopkeeping was a difficult trade to be in. Women shopkeepers were mainly widows and were ridiculed in the local press. In 1733, Peter Zenger wrote a piece in the New York Journal referring to female shop owners as, quote, she-merchants, meant to be an insult to the women who dared to earn their own living. James Murray, as the oldest, took on a paternalistic role for the family, trying to find suitable futures for Elizabeth and her siblings. When Elizabeth shared her desire to stay in Boston and open up shop, her brother, while not thrilled, did what he could to help his sister by helping her obtain credit to purchase goods. Elizabeth experienced some initial shortfalls, being labeled the broken shopkeeper due to running out of visible stock on her shelves. Not to be deterred, she got creative and began placing boxes with letters and numbers printed on them out in public view to give the illusion that she was fully stocked, but just hadn't gone through all of her imports yet. Elizabeth also epitomized the idea of the side hustle, teaching embroidery and taking in borders while also running her shop. After some initial stumbles, Elizabeth began to earn a profit from her multiple cash streams and asserted her independence by traveling to London in December of 1753. Traveling alone, without her brother or another male to speak for her, she conducted business on her own behalf, stepping outside of her brother or any other man's shadow for the first time. Elizabeth was very forward-thinking given her place in history. Women typically gained their wealth through marriage and lost rights to any property they held once they entered into a marriage contract. Her financial independence was something she consistently worried about and would work to protect throughout her life and would actively mentor other young women in the spirit of financial independence. Elizabeth learned just how protective of her assets she needed to be when she married for the first time in 1755 to Thomas Campbell. Campbell, a Scotsman who was engaged in coastal trade, was seen as an ideal match for Elizabeth given their shared ancestry. When they married, Campbell gave up his career and Elizabeth, as was established law, relinquished her stake in the business she worked so hard to develop, turning over the running of her business to her husband. When Thomas died of the measles just four years into their marriage in 1759, Elizabeth was left with settling the estate and was criticized almost immediately by her in-laws, who felt a woman should not be given such grave responsibilities. Elizabeth would marry again a second time in March 1760. Her second husband, a sugar planter by the name of James Smith, was advanced in age and was more than 30 years older than Elizabeth. However, before she entered into the marriage, she and her soon-to-be husband entered into the colonial version of a prenuptial agreement on March 13, 1760. This is a major deal due to the infrequency with which these contracts were executed throughout the colonies. In the document, titled Indenture of James Smith to Elizabeth Campbell, Elizabeth was promised, in writing, to receive one-third of Smith's vast estate. Another pretty awesome thing about this agreement was the fact that James gave up his financial control of his wife's business. By releasing his control, Elizabeth was able to keep financial independence and rights to all property she brought into the marriage. Elizabeth, having married into an economically sound situation, gave up her shop and began shifting her focus to mentorship. One of the first to benefit from her insight was her niece Dolly, who learned all about embroidery and simple arithmetic used in keeping business records. Throughout the 1760s, Murray would be actively involved in the education of three nieces and sponsor the career of two sisters as they began their own business. Amy and Elizabeth Cummings, sisters who were struggling to find the livelihood after the death of their mother, 
turned to Murray for initial support and guidance. And like her brother did for her, Murray sponsored the sisters in their startup, providing them with the ability to obtain credit, purchase goods, and have a successful start. Murray believed wholeheartedly that shopkeeping could be an avenue of economic independence for women and promoted this belief throughout her life in correspondence and in actions with the females around her. Elizabeth, in part due to her husband's estate, would become so financially secure that she even helped pay for her brother's expenses, including inviting her brother James to take on the sugar house previously run by her husband. Unfortunately, her brother took over the sugar house just as the Sugar Act was passed and he was unable to turn a profit, closing it within a year of taking over. James had the worst luck, y'all. During his time in the colonies, this guy lost children, his wife, and many economic opportunities before getting kicked to the curb for being a British loyalist at the beginnings of the American Revolution. But anyway, Elizabeth's second husband passed away on August 4th, 1769. As promised, Elizabeth inherited a large estate and would be permanently financially secure. However, the marriage, and caring for an ailing husband, took its toll on Elizabeth, who, at the age of 43, was run down and in need of a recharge. And so Murray would cross the Atlantic again to take in the sights of her former home, where she spent two years catching up with friends and family, shopping and taking some much-needed downtime. Though across the pond, Elizabeth continued to mentor while in the UK, bringing one of her nieces with her to be placed at a prep school for proper training. And if all of that wasn't enough to make her a badass, y'all, there's more. Elizabeth got to experience the American Revolution up close and personal, literally watching her home become the barracks for colonial soldiers and being dragged into political fights due to her support of female merchants. After her English journey, Elizabeth returned to Boston, a city in political upheaval, in June of 1771. With her on her arrival was another niece, Polly, who would learn shopkeeping by shadowing two of Elizabeth's prior protégés, the Cummings sisters. Within three months of returning to Boston, Elizabeth would marry for a third and final time to a man named Ralph Einman. Like her second husband, Ralph also signed a prenuptial agreement. This indenture recognized Elizabeth's vast property holdings she received as a result of her second marriage and identified these as wholly belonging to Elizabeth. Only the income derived from the property during the course of their marriage would be considered belonging to her spouse. Unfortunately, the third time was not the charm for Elizabeth, who would feel abandoned by and angered at her spouse throughout the conflict known as the American Revolution. Ralph and Elizabeth were separated early in the war, and this separation seemed to come with a myriad of miscommunications and hurt feelings. Ralph, a Crown loyalist, had left their home in Cambridge in the spring of 1775 and was residing behind British lines in Boston. Elizabeth, dedicated to the idea of economic and financial independence, refused to leave her home or farms behind, unwilling to lose the money from her crop harvest. While defending her livelihood, Elizabeth watched as colonial armies marched throughout Cambridge, taking over the Einman estate to use as barracks. Luckily, Elizabeth had a number of properties and was able to find refuge in another location. Murray spent the revolution in a delicate balance of neutrality, having both loyalist and rebel associations. This did not go unnoticed. Elizabeth's name would be dragged through the mud, with colonial papers questioning her loyalties and comparing her to prostitutes for having dealings with the loyalists. Elizabeth made it through the revolution, eventually able to return home, but was worse for the wear. Missing friends, Murray began to make plans to return to the British Isles in 1785. However, before her plans could be finalized, Elizabeth fell ill with a mysterious illness. On May 25, 1785, 
Elizabeth Murray Campbell Smith Inman, died. In her will, she continued her support of her fellow women, leaving vast parts of her estate to her nieces and female friends, much to the chagrin of her third husband. Throughout her life, Murray worked to enable not only her own economic independence, but those of women around her, in a time not kind to the notion of female independence. To quote historian Patricia Cleary, Elizabeth's story, quote, captures the range of self-made women's experiences as well as the social and political obstacles that governed an 18th century woman's life, end quote. And I couldn't agree more. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Thank you.